Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, how you doing? You excited? I'm very, very excited, Steve. We have got. I think just an unbelievable guest today. Uh, she's simply one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, she's one of the all-time greats. She's been nominated for six Academy Awards and was a winner for her work in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Her other films include The Last Picture Show, The Exorcist, Same Time Next Year, Resurrection, and Requiem for a Dream. Her latest film is Queen Bees, also starring James Caan and Anne Margaret and Jane Curtin, among others. It will be out on June the 11th. The great Ellen Burstyn joins us. Ellen, thank you so much for doing this. We we really are honored to uh, to have you on the podcast. Thank you. So, Glad to be here. So uh, we'll talk about Queen Bees, which is a, a delightful movie, but I, I wanted to go back a little bit. We are such huge fans of yours. I mean, you are one of my all-time favorite actors. So it's it's really exciting to get a, a chance to talk to you. Um, Thank you. So can you take us back to the early days of the actor studio when you first joined it, what it was like and what students you, you worked with? Well, um, l- let me first of all clarify that um, the actors of the Actors Studio have auditioned to get in. They're professional actors. They're not considered students. And when they pass the audition and they're invited in, they become lifetime members. So that's how we refer to them as members. And we provide a service for them, a stage, an audience, and a moderator. And they bring in whatever they want that's going to deepen their work and help them to grow as artists and keep them in shape till their next job. So when I got there, Lee Strasberg was uh, the moderator and the leader. And um, it was after Marilyn had been there. It wasn't, I mean, Paul Newman was... um, a member, but he didn't um, come to sessions too often by that time. He came earlier in his career, you know, when he was still developing. By the time I got there, he was already a big star. Um, and I, I can't think of any, like, um, people who attended sessions regularly that were, that were very well known uh, they were all people like me who were professional actors, working actors, but were still, you know, waiting for that, that step into, uh, I don't know what you call it, stardom, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, professional, good, serious, wanting to uh, be better, developing and willing to undergo the rigorous process of submitting your process to Lee Strasberg. He was, he was all about helping you understand what your process was in developing a character and, and fulfilling a role. So it was intricate, 
personal, deep, painful, educative, enlightening, transformative, and very scary. Hmm. Interesting. I always wondered what the magic was behind Lee Strasberg because he spawned, you know, you know, so many, you know, prolific careers. And I always wondered what, what, it, what was it about him? What was it about his technique that he did that, that other acting, teacher, act, acting teachers did not? He was very special. He, it was like he had radar eyes. Um, you know, it was like getting an MRI of the soul. Mm, Uh, or your talent and when you got up in front of him to work he went right in like a laser beam to your deepest place and I'll give you an example the first time I did an exercise for him the exercise was to create whatever it is that you drink for breakfast in my case a cup of coffee Mm-hmm. So I'm working on an imaginary cup of coffee. And after a while, he says to me, Ellen, do you ride horses? Oh, God, where are we going with this, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I said, um, I used to. I used to ride. And he said, when you rode, did you ride well? I said, pretty well. I had my own horse. Long pause. He said, well, you don't have to ride that cup. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I looked up shocked at him. And he said, what if you made a mistake? Go on. Make a mistake. And I started crying. And I cried for about two weeks because all of the um, cover I had built over myself, he blew away. Mm-hmm. He wasn't accepting it. And he saw deeper. He saw past my um, constructed personality to a... Um, more rudimentary being down there. And that's who he wanted to bring forward. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's, Oh, I'm sorry, Ellen, go ahead. No, no, that's not, (laughs) go ahead. No, what I was going to say when, when, when he said, you know, make a mistake. um, I I have a a good friend who's a writer, a fellow writer, and she has a sign um, on her above on her wall above her desk that says, fail, fail again, fail better. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times with performers don't understand or, or, or that, that that's, that's okay. You know, it's okay to do that because what comes out of it is, is going to be so great on the other side. Well, that was the thing. He said that the actor's studio was where you can go and work and not be afraid of failing. You could try anything. You could do anything. If it doesn't work, fine. But you took a stab at it. You went for something that you weren't sure you could accomplish. And maybe you don't. But just the act, the bravery of going there will already open up hmm. areas of yourself. So 
that's what we did. It was very hard. It was very painful because, you know, we all build personalities around ourselves that are constructions. And if you work with that construction, it's ordinary. If you can find the way to get past it and reveal something deeper about a human being, yourself, um, that's revelatory work. And people respond to that. People get that. Hmm. In other words, my deepest self then connects with your deepest self when you're watching. Right. Right. And that's what he was always going for. He, was, he wasn't going for performance. He wasn't going for fulfilling the writer's intention. He wasn't going for making yourself look as glamorous as possible. He wanted a soul, a soul connection between you and the viewer. Hmm. You know, I had a chance to interview Peter Bogdanovich a couple of times, and your breakthrough role was in Last Picture Show. Um, and what I read is that you had kind of a choice of roles. Is, is that true? And, and why did you choose to play Lois? Um, I came in, I was sent in to play the part that Eileen Brennan ended up playing, the waitress. And it was the least interesting of the three parts, in my opinion. And um, I read for that. And then I said to Peter, I said, I'll read for this role, but I'd also like to read for Lois. He said, all right. So I read for Lois. And then he, when I finished, he said, okay, now read. I don't remember the character's name, the part that it, uh, the third part, which ended up being played by Cloris Leachman. Yes. So I, I read for that part. And when I finished, he said, Okay, so we know you're in the movie. Now we just have to figure out what parts you're going to play. And he wanted me to play the part that the coach's wife, it was called. That's the part Chorus played. And I didn't want to play that because I was going through a divorce at the time. It was very difficult. I was very sad and down. And that character was in the same condition. And I felt that Lois had um, control of herself, that she had, that she knew how to handle herself. And I, I wanted to be able to connect with that feeling at that time. And I, I didn't want to play somebody who is depressed. Uh, so when I told Peter that I, I didn't want to play the coach's wife, he said, but that's the, that's the Oscar winning part. I said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't want to play her. I'll play Lois. So I was very glad I did. And Cloris did win the Oscar and she was wonderful in the role. And I think we all ended up being in the parts we should have been in. Hmm. You know, I was reading that um, when Cloris Leachman's final scene, um, she wanted to, I guess she wanted to rehearse and then she wanted to do it again. And Peter said, no. He he wouldn't he wouldn't shoot it again. He said, "You already won the Oscar." Yep. And I I wonder, as an actress, do you do you always think you can do better, or like, have you ever been told that you 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 can't do it again, and and you wanted to and and you fought and you got your way, or you know, how does that work? Um, I usually have a sense 
of when I've done it, not always, but usually I have a sense of, okay, that was it. And the director will agree. But in Requiem for a Dream, I had a scene. Um, well, it doesn't matter what scene it was. It was a scene. And we shot it four times. And they were all good. Um, and I was happy with it. And then Pete, uh, Darren said to me, um, okay, we've got it. It's in the can. Let's just do one more and do whatever you want. That's the one that's in the movie. Hmm. Hmm. And there is something, and I never realized this until that event, that his saying, we've got it, it's already in the can, took all obligation away from me. I didn't have to. I wasn't required to do any specific thing. I could just let it fly. and that released something in me that made it better. So I grew up a Catholic kid. I'm not very good at it now, but I grew up Catholic. And so the exorcist, I mean, we, we believed in exorcism. I mean, I, I, I grew up thinking about that and, you know, the exorcist really shook me. I saw it as a probably too young a kid. Uh, I saw it when I was very young. Um, how old? Oh, how old were you? Probably nine years old. Ah, that's too young. Yeah, that was terrifying. <laughs> I don't think mom and dad knew about that. Um, but when that script came along, did you have any hesitation about taking that role given the subject matter? No. First of all, I had read the book beforehand, and I thought it was a fascinating book. And I also knew. Well, I don't know at what point I knew this, but at some point I knew that it was based on an actual case. And the fact that that was real meant it was a valid subject for a film. Um, I, and, you know, once the movie was announced, that was a kind of coup to get that part. Hmm. Everybody sort of wanted not everybody, but a lot of actresses wanted wanted to play it. Um, so I was I was thrilled to get it. It was scary, to, you know. Fooling with dark energies can be scary. Yeah, and it was. But um, I felt like the film had a a good psychological base laid down of for the daughter and, and why that could happen to her, how she could be open to that kind of energy coming into her. And then what's the intensity like that on the set? I mean, you're shooting these, so, I mean, these disturbing scenes uh, when, when William Friedkin yelled shut, uh, cut, what was that set like? Was it, was it a really quiet set? It was intense. I'll tell you that. Um, it was very focused. I, I remember when they were setting up shots, but, you know, if we did a scene and then they were moving the lights and camera around to do the close-ups or whatever, I would turn my chair to the wall and put a headset on and listen to music and keep my eyes closed and not relate to anybody. Hmm. And not 
let go of the mood, their inner state that I'd created in the master. It was very intense. I actually was reading that William Freakin um, used to shoot a gun to provoke the actors. Was that true? No, he only did it once. And and at what point did he do that? Like, do you, do you remember like what scene it was that that he did that? Yeah, I I do. Well, you know, it was a lot of years ago. I think I remember it correctly. It was the scene where um, Regan, my daughter, is uh, really possessed by the demons, and I see it for the first time, and she slaps me in the face and knocks me on the floor. Uh, and she's standing on the bed. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was that scene, although I wouldn't put money on it. Uh, it was one of those scenes where the camera's in close up and there had to be a reaction of something totally unworldly, unexpected happening. And so he, he startled me. With a gunshot. If he did it to anybody else, I don't know about it, but that was the one time he did it to me. Yeah. So we've already mentioned a couple of great auteurs that you worked with. You worked with Peter Bogdanovich and William Friedkin and Martin Scorsese on Alan Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, you worked with Darren Aronofsky uh, a little later in your career. What, what do these great auteurs have in common as directors? Mm. I wonder. Well, they're all very smart. Let's start there. They're all film buffs. They all know film, the history of film and the, the angles and the, the lenses and the, they know the technical aspects. Um, and they all also listen to actors. You know, they don't try and dominate performances. They cast well. Who was it? Um, Paul Mazursky once said to me that after the script, 90% of a director's job is casting. Hmm. And I can see where that's, that that's true. The, the best directors I know hire the best actors and are open to what the actors bring. They're not um, dominating the, the actor's creative process. They're encouraging it. Yeah, you know, in Requiem for a Dream, I just wanted to go back to that for a minute because I rewatched it the other night and um, I hadn't seen it since I originally saw it. And, you know, talk about a wild ride in, in filmmaking. I mean, you know, you guys had cameras mounted to you and, you know, you're reacting to things that aren't there. And, you know, as you're, you know, spiraling, spiraling out of control. And I wondered like, cause so much of it with the sound design and the editing, I mean that like, what, what was your reaction when the film was done and you saw it for the first time, what you saw what Darren Aronofsky did with everything that you guys shot? Um, 
I remember being very impressed with the editing, particularly the 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 drugs, the way he shot the the bottle caps opening and snapping closed and the and you know and quickening the 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 movement of the taking the drugs. It was very original and uh I hadn't imagined anything like that. I was I was very excited by it. Also the music. I thought the music was just so beautiful and I had not anticipated that kind of music. Um, you know, I was very aware of what was going into this effort. I mean, the, you know, the weight loss was, I wore a fat suit. I had a, a neck glued on to me hmm. that during the course of the day, my skin um, imbibed the glue. <laughs> so when we went to take it off, it wouldn't come off. And we had to slowly peel it off. It took over an hour to take off. And my skin was bright red and burning every day. And then after a certain point, I lost 20 pounds. So I got into a 20-pound fat suit instead of a 40-pound fat suit. Hmm. And I wore that for a couple of weeks. And then we got to the next weight loss. And I had a two-week break in the shooting. So I um, went on the cabbage soup diet for two weeks, and I lost 10 more pounds. So I think altogether I lost 50 pounds. Wow. In, in that, I mean, artificially and actually. You know, I only lost an actual 10, but with the fat suits, it was, I'm pretty sure it was 50 if I remember correctly. So it was very rigorous. It was very difficult getting out of the, the glue in my skin and having to rip this thing off. It was all the way down my chest, my neck, my chest. So my whole chest was bright red from, you know, being burned. <laughs> Uh, it was uncomfortable. So it was a Herculean effort, I must say. Yeah. I, I felt it was worth all the problems and trouble and pain when I saw it. Yeah, it's certainly a film that stands the uh, the test of time. And yeah. yeah. So does The Exorcist, by the way. I attended the 45th anniversary of it in uh, Los, Los Angeles a couple of years ago. And it really does stand the test of time. It holds up. It's really a good film, classic film. So I love Same Time Next Year, partly because as a humble actor in college, I got to play George. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was an incredible experience. Uh, it's such a beautiful play. You played it on stage, and then you played it on, uh, in film. What, what's the difference between those two performances, um, stage and film, the same role? Well, first of all, I, I can't go on without mentioning um, my divine partner on stage, Charles Grodin, just died yeah. this week. And he was so wonderful in that role. And it was just a shame that I won the Tony and he didn't. 
hmm. because it was such a duet. You know, hmm. I, my performance was um, enhanced by him and his performance so much that I really felt bad that I, I won that year and he didn't. Um, and I, I loved playing with him. I loved that whole, I think, six months. Um, I did that, and it was a it was just a, a great experience. And I was very disappointed that they wouldn't cast him in the film. Um, the studio didn't think he was a big enough draw, and they cast Alan Alda, who is also divine partner. I had a great time with Alan Alda. I, he's he's such a superior human being he's so loving and smart and deep and fun and talented um so what else do you want to know about uh, the, di- the difference between playing that on stage and playing that on in film well there's no difference essentially but you know we went up to northern california and the idea was that we were in this beautiful um, inn and up on the edge of the the mountain, looking down on the ocean. And we were going to put a lot of it outdoors because in the on in the play, it's just one room. And so the idea was we're going to open it up and we're going to be taking walks along the the ocean and under the beautiful trees and so forth. And then it rained the whole time we were there and we had to end up doing it in one room. I have memories of standing, waiting to make an entrance, um, standing under a roof, holding an umbrella and it's pouring and we're waiting and waiting for, you know, a half hour, an hour until there's a, the rain lets up and then we run out and do the scene real fast. And then we come back and before we can do take two, it's raining again. Um, but, you know, as far as the, the human being I was creating, all that work is the same. I don't think there's really, you know, your awareness of the audience as opposed to the camera is different. But the the inner work, which is the important work, that's the same. You know, in, in over 60 years in the business, I wonder, um, is there anybody that you haven't worked with that you would love to work with? Oh, so many people. Al Pacino. Hmm. Um, that's He's my main one. I would love to work with Al. Yeah. I'm sorry. We haven't worked together. I can't think of anybody else offhand that who's still alive, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) There were some people earlier, but they're gone. I want to tell a little story about my dad. If you ask my dad, my late great father, uh, what his three favorite movies were, he would say, The Guns of Navarone, The Dirty Dozen, and Resurrection. Oh, I love your father. (laughs) He was so taken 
by that film. And you know, the scene that he talks about and still blows me away is when you are laying next to this young girl who has maybe cerebral palsy, I'm I'm guessing maybe. And and you sort of you take that on. Uh you take that from her, heal her, and it is so intense. Tell me about shooting that particular scene. Um, the actress who played the patient was in the bed with a blanket up and up to her chest. We're on radio, right? I can't, yes. Yes, <laughs> can't demonstrate. <laughs> and um, in the scene, I, you know, she she contorts, her body contorts, and her her hands and her feet are all at uncomfortable angles. And I take on her physical characteristics. And when I pulled the blanket down and revealed her feet, her feet were all contorted. Really. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her feet and I looked at her and she was watching me see her feet for the first time. And she said, I've been ashamed of them all my life. Hmm. At last, they have some use. We were able to shoot a close-up of her feet just resting. Her toes were all overlapping. It was a, a magical, magical moment. Mm. Wow. You know, you like Sue and I are dog people. Uh-huh. I, I have uh, got a, a little 15-year-old beagle named Sophie and a little terrier shelter mix named Fredo. And Sue, you have... Um, Tucker, who's a kind of a, some sort of terrier chihuahua mix and he's, he's 14. Yeah. So, so you are, what, what is it about dogs? You, I, I read that you, you pretty much your whole life have had, had dogs in your life. Yeah. I, I have a new one. She's right beside me now. She's a puppy. Uh, oh, this is funny. I, I was looking for a gadoodle a mixture of a golden, which I've had, and a poodle, which I've had. Mm-hmm. And I've met a few of the, one, the gadoodles that are a mixture. So I was online looking for a gadoodle, and I saw a lot of pictures, but none of them spoke to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the look, I didn't connect with them. And I kept on looking at pictures, and suddenly there was this puppy. And the moment I saw her face, I went, that's my dog. Mm-hmm. And then I saw her name was Carrie, K-E-R-R-I. And my first job when I came to New York in the 1950s was dancing in a nightclub. And I called myself Carrie Flynn, K-E-R-R-I. And I said, well, that's it. That's me. (laughs) So So I got her. And she was eight weeks old when I got her. And she's now going on four months. I've always had dogs from the time I was a kid. I loved communicating with other species. 
um, whether it's a cat or a dog or a bird or whatever. But of course, dogs are the easiest ones to relate to. But monkeys, apes, gorillas, I, I went um, in Rwanda, went into the jungles and tracked the wild gorillas and came upon a family and watched the kids play and the mothers um, tending to them and the silverback gorilla, the father of them all, just a few feet away, maybe about 20 feet away, wow. keeping an eye on us. It was a thrilling experience. Um, I've always been moved by the animal world. Um, and I like being able to communicate with them. I like, I like talking to them and having them understand what I'm saying and letting me know how they're feeling so that we just inter, interspecies communication has always moved me deeply. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's something about, um, you know, I, I look at my, all the dogs that I've ever had and I, I mean, I love them so much. It's like I've birthed them myself. I mean, it's just the connection yeah. that I've had. And, and when, when someone comes into my house and it's like, Ooh, get your dog away. It's like, I don't know, part of me kind of feels bad for them that they don't have that connection, nor do they want it or, or not, they don't even realize what they're missing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't like to live without an animal. My last dog died um, when she was 17, just before lockdown. And so I, I went a year before I got Carrie. So I went through lockdown without an animal. Mm. And I never liked the idea of going and get another animal right away like they're replaceable because they're not ever. So I always honor a mourning period grief period so we came out of lockdown just about the same time that carrie appeared in my life but um, i really don't feel normal when i don't have a an animal partner an animal friend yeah we're we're very very much the the same hey i want to ask you about uh, queen bees which is really that's a delightful movie um, what was it like working with classic actors like James Caan and Jane Curtin and Anne Margaret and Loretta Devine and the rest? It was fun. <laughs> we were we were playing. We played with each other. Uh, I would say we all had a really good time. There were there were no um, no problems on the set. Michael Lembeck is the the director, and he sets a really wonderful tone, very organized and fun. He's a, he's a fun person with a, a good sense of humor. So it, it's always lively and, and humorous. There's a, a humor feeling on the set all the time with Michael. Um, and, you know, all of those actors are so skilled and practiced and um, know what they're doing. We know how to play with each other. So that's what we're doing. We're playing. So when, when you're taking a movie, you know, after being in, in, in movies for so long, you know, is it, 
Is it the director that attracts you? Is it the cast that directs you? The script? I mean, or is it just a combination of everything? It's a combination of everything, but mainly the script. Hmm. I mean, it's, it, you know, for instance, Pieces of a Woman. First, I read the script and I liked it very much. And then I looked at the work of the director because I didn't know it at all. Cornell, he's Hungarian. I looked at a film of his called a white God, which is a dog film, by the way. You two dog lovers should see it. It's yeah. really wonderful. It's, it's mainly about dogs, and it's just divine. And I fell in love with that. Um, and then Vanessa Kirby was playing the Martha, the lead, and I admired her work. So it was all three things. And with um, Queen Bees, it was the script and the idea that it was a love story with people in their retirement home, you know, because I don't know if you've read about it, but it seems there's an awful lot of sex going on in retirement homes these days. <laughs> yeah, you know, they were, they were saying that there's a, um, like, um, um, tr- you know, sexually transmitted diseases are the highest <laughs> In retirement no. home. Right. Seriously. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of in this movie. <laughs> you know, one of the things I love about this movie, my grandmother lived in assisted living for about 20 years, but there were five years there where she just refused. Even though she really needed to be there, she really refused. And once she got there, she had a really good time every day. And, and I think this movie sort of captures that, particularly, you know, for, for, uh, for people who have parents that are at that point or for seniors who are at that point. It sends a really, really positive message that that kind of is very, very, can be very happy. Well, I was pleased. We shot in an actual retirement home and it was so beautiful a wonderful swimming pool and outdoor grounds and a lovely restaurant. And, and the people seemed to be very, having a very good time, There was, you know, <laughs> card playing and somebody was selling jewelry. You know, somebody came in and set up tables with jewelry and was selling it costume jewelry. I mean, I mean, diamonds. Sure. Um, and they were all having a good time. They weren't just like lonely people sitting in their room all by themselves, you know. They were relating with each other and forming couples and and groups and playing cards. And, you know, they were very active. So it was a wonderful atmosphere to work in, actually. And we used many of the real um, residents uh, Ah. In the story is lectures. But you just reminded me of a story I want to tell you about that happened because you mentioned resurrection before. And that's one of my favorite films. It didn't get released properly and it got lost and not enough people saw it. But that's a film I put together and it meant a lot to me and I really liked it. And in it, I play a healer for people who didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And um we had a scene in Queen Bees in my apartment. We're having a book club. And we used some of the residents of the retirement home where we were shooting as extras in the book club. So there was a woman sitting next to me 
Um, and we did the scene. And afterwards, she said, I want to tell you something. And I said, okay. And she said, Resurrection was a very important movie to me. Hmm. It affected me in a very deep way. And it was very important at a particular moment in my life when I saw it. And this is my first day in the retirement home. And I was feeling very depressed about coming here. And I didn't want to be here. The fact that I got to sit next to you and tell you how important resurrection was to me mm. changed my whole attitude, made me so happy. I have to tell you, you healed me wow. today. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's oh, amazing. Man, that is so lovely. Yeah. yeah. I was very moved by that. Yeah. She's a lovely woman. Well, listen, this, uh, you know, we, we could talk to you all day long uh, because you are so fascinating and your career is so legendary. But I will just tell people, Queen Bees is out on June the 11th. Strongly recommend that. And Ellen Burstyn, thank you very much for, for taking the time. It, it really is an honor to talk with you. We're even bigger fans now. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with you. Wow. That was pretty amazing, huh? It was unreal to be talking to her. Um, and and she's our uh, our first triple crown winner. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. <laughs> you know, it's 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 like when you think about it, um, it's like talking to like someone like Carly Yastrzemski. You know, it's like you could talk to Willie Mays, who is yep. great too. Yeah, but but you but. You, you got to talk to Carly Stromsky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, she yeah, she really crazy. is. She really is such, and she mentioned Pieces of a Woman, which just came out last year, her and Vanessa Kirby. I mean, she is so great in that. She is <laughs> so great in that in that film. And and frankly, she's just great in everything. Everything. And the, the characters that she, you know, whether they've come to her or she sought them out, I mean, just these like fractured, yet, strong you know there's a certain type of 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 woman um that that she's embodied and uh i mean you, you talk to her and and you know that that's who she is yeah you know? she's yeah been, i love the she's openness seen a lot and she knows a lot the you know openness of her you know yes yes you know, she was willing to you know as they say go there she was very that was a very intimate conversation about her career and couldn't be more uh grateful uh, for the uh, time that she gave us. And uh, Queen Bees comes out June 11th. You'll love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You'll sweet. love it. Yeah, it's a sweet, sweet movie. It's like, right. uh, to me, I look at it as like a like a coming of old age movie. Coming you know? of old age. That's a good way to describe it. It's, uh, it's charming. All right, so you know who brings us this show every single week, who makes it possible? Sue? Jacob. Yes, my man, Jacob Imrani, who's a proud sponsor of the world champion Los Angeles Lakers, isn't. Just a guy you see on TV or hear about on the radio or see on billboards while you're driving around town. Jacob is a husband. He's a father. As you know, he's a huge sports fan. And he even coaches his kids in basketball and soccer. Jacob is one of us. He also happens to be an attorney who for 25 years has provided amazing results 
to his injured clients. Jacob is one of us, but he is a friend who can really help when you are in a bind. You've heard me talk about Jacob for a decade now. Jacob is a real person, a real attorney, a real friend of mine, and he's my attorney. So if you're ever injured in any kind of accident, he should be your attorney. Remember the catchy jingle. Oh, I should say 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB. And now the catchy jingle. Accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. Jacob. Wow, that may be the best one yet. You know, (laughs) (laughs) your ear when it comes to continuity is uh is, is so genius off. yeah it's so, so genius off. yeah such a brilliant it's like the ear. worst one no, and i and i know ears. and i know when when we're not in sync you're going to tell me how great it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'm very uh i'm hard on us you know i want this i want this jingle to be great you know i want it to be great for jacob but you, you're not you're not hard on us because you thought that one was good. <laughs> yeah, true, true. A lot of times I have a little judgment, but that one nailed it. That one nailed it. <laughs> oh, hey, listen, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button on iTunes or Spotify. You can uh, leave us a review. You can rate the show, hopefully a five-star rating. Uh, we appreciate you being out there all the time. Sue, that was cool. Yes, absolutely. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.